Alberta's request for emergency help denied. We have reached out to other provinces to see if they have any available space. What it means for B.C. right next door to Canada's worsening COVID hotspot. The TikTok challenge ruining schools. We need it to stop. The devious licks phenomenon and how parents might be forced to pay. And a neighborhood under siege. Panic alarm for the employees during the day bars in the window. A personal tour from VPD showing what's driving an increase in crime in Vancouver's West End. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in a moment. But first, some justice tonight for the family of a 14-year-old boy who overdosed in a Langley skateboard park. The child's final moments were captured on camera and that recording is disturbing to watch. And now a 20-year-old man has been charged in connection with Carson Cremeni's death. For the latest, let's bring in Aaron MacArthur, who's in Langley tonight with reaction from Carson's dad, Aaron. Yeah, Chris, a charge of manslaughter laid against a 20-year-old suspect in Carson's death, as you say. The suspect, uh, according to the Langley RCMP, turning himself in without incident. Uh, the suspect here can't be named because at the time of Carson's death, suspect was a minor. Langley RCMP say they sifted through hundreds of tips and interviewed more than 100 witnesses to get to this charge recommendation and charge approval. Carson Cremeni died near the skate park. He was with a group of older kids uh, who filmed the incident rather than offered assistance. Carson's dad is relieved that charges have been recommended and approved, but feels more people should be held responsible here. One person's been charged, as far as we've been informed. Um, I mean, myself and my dad both believe that more than one person should be charged. I mean, there were there were people involved with filming. There were people that were intentionally not assisting him, you know, for the sake of, well, like I said, laughing at him while he OD'd, right? And... Um, I do believe that there are a couple other individuals that should be charged. Just a wave of emotion passing through Aaron Kermeni there. He just can't really put it all into words just yet, as he said to us earlier. Uh, the suspect in this case will be facing his first court appearance October 20th. Chris, Sophie. All right, and we'll have coverage of that, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Aaron. Well, the victim of Wednesday's deadly shooting in the parkade of a downtown Vancouver hotel has now been identified. Vancouver police say 35-year-old Aman Manj was shot while inside his car in the Fairmont Pacific Rim parkade. Manj was a member of the United Nations gang, and police say they believe his killing was targeted. Investigators do believe this was a targeted shooting. However, given the time of day and where the victim is found, it's obviously very concerning to us. We also know that when a shooting of this nature does occur, it always poses the risk of a retaliation. That's where uh, the you know, public safety does come into risk, as there always could be innocent bystanders. It is unknown if this shooting is connected to the Lower Mainland gang conflict or not. That is something our investigators are still working on. At this point, no suspects have been publicly identified or arrested. Anyone with information is asked to contact Vancouver Police or Crime Stoppers. 
The B.C. government is now going after assets belonging to the parents of three well-known gangsters. The director of civil forfeiture is trying to take ownership of more than $22,000 in cash and a diamond ring seized during a 2018 raid of a home belonging to the Kang family. Police say the Kang group were major players in the gang conflict. Randy Kang was shot to death in Surrey in October 2017. His younger brother Gary was killed this past January inside a Surrey home. And a third brother, Sam, is now serving a 14-year prison sentence for drug offenses. Their parents, Gurcharn and Mohanvir Kang, are disputing the forfeiture. RCMP now confirmed they are investigating a homicide in Merritt after the discovery of a body there earlier this week. 51-year-old Dennis Michael Walters of Merritt has been identified as the victim found in a rural area near Nicola Lake at 8 a.m. Tuesday. Police are asking anyone with knowledge of Walters' whereabouts on Monday to get in contact with officers as they try to determine a timeline leading up to his death. Saanich police are looking for the suspect in a sexual assault on a transit, but la, uh, transit bus last Friday afternoon. They've got a photo of him. The incident is believed to have taken place on the Route 39 bus, which left the University of Victoria Exchange at about 1.40 p.m. Police say the suspect approached the woman and committed a sexual assault while the bus was in motion. Both exited the bus at the Royal Oak Exchange about 20 minutes later, where the victim was followed briefly before the suspect disappeared. He's described as a black man, 20 to 30 years old, with a medium build, 5'8 to 5'11 inches tall, wearing a black skater-style hat. And anyone with information is asked to call police. Well, assaults, break-ins, vandalism and violent shopliftings have all been on the rise in Vancouver's downtown core in recent months. And police are now launching a new campaign to deal with the problem. As Kamal Karamali shows us, it is a challenging issue for both police and residents. If you actually just have a look right here. You can't go more than a few feet along Davies Street without finding a business that's been vandalized in the past few months. They've been victimized three times. VPD Constable Jason Desette has been patrolling this neighborhood near Thurlow for two and a half years. Things have changed in the West End. And has seen crime surge across the West End since the pandemic began. We believe a small portion of the criminal elements are doing a large portion of the crime. Countless break-ins and general chaos. So it's people yelling, screaming, maybe breaking a window or banging. Caused by more notorious vandals. This example of a storefront being smashed Wednesday near Thurlow and Granville. When police made the arrest, they found a backpack full of drugs and weapons, including an imitation gun. Now Vancouver police announcing Thursday they plan to respond, redeploying officers from other parts of downtown. We're increasing the number of patrols to those hardest hit areas, including Granville Street and the West End. More police patrolling the West End on foot and on bikes. They put a torch to the bottom here. John Cleardis had his shop broken into just last week and an e-bike stolen. I've been working on Davie Street since 1977 and I, uh, this is one of the worst. Many residents blaming the homeless population. Tent right there, we can't even get in the grocery store and feel safe. And needles. Even interrupting our interview to get the point across. It's like almost tripled since COVID set in. But those who live on the street, like Chase McCabe, say it's not just those who are homeless causing the crimes, but others who are cash strapped from the pandemic and desperate without many resources to help them. It's just not the homeless people, it's everybody. 
in that environment that's creating havoc. Constable Doucette says part of the problem is that many of the incidents fall under the radar. But I strongly feel it's underreported. If we don't know about it, we can't help. He's hoping additional police officers help reduce crime, but asking the public to step up as well. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Now to the COVID crisis in our neighboring province that's impacting us too. It looks like B.C. won't be bailing out Alberta as that province struggles to deal with the after effects of its controversial approach to the pandemic. Ted Trenecki tells us why B.C. health officials say they can't take any patients from Alberta should that province ask. As Alberta's health care system approaches the collapsing point, an urgent call for help from the CEO of Alberta Health Services. We will be reaching out to other provinces to see if they have any available ICU space where Albertans could get the care that they need. But that help won't be coming from B.C., at least not now. In a statement, Health Minister Adrian Dick said, given the current demands on B.C.'s health care system, we will not be able to assist with taking patients at this time. Alberta's other neighboring province isn't of much help either, as it believes its caseload is on the same trajectory as Alberta's. The government of Saskatchewan has been very patient. Possibly we have been too patient. And that time for patience is now over. Both provinces have reintroduced new restrictions. Like B.C., Alberta will now have a proof-of-vaccination program starting in five days, and masks are again required indoors. It is now clear that we were wrong, and for that, I apologize. However, Alberta's Premier didn't apologize for lifting almost all public health restrictions in July, saying that at the time, cases were going down and vaccinations were going up. But it was about two weeks after lifting those restrictions that cases started to rise rapidly the fourth wave. But unlike previous waves, this wave of the pandemic is being driven almost entirely by one group, the unvaccinated. This could happen uh, anywhere where vaccine coverage is low. The ICUs being filled up with younger people. These are not seniors. These are people who are definitely under 60. Alberta has more than 18,000 active cases of COVID, the most of any province by far. Ontario, with three times the population, has one-third as many cases. Ontario has graciously offered their help, and we are in discussions with them regarding potential transfer of patients if needed. In Alberta, almost 900 people are in hospital, more than 220 in intensive care. Over a 24-hour period this week, the Alberta government reported 1,609 new cases and 24 deaths. Ten more deaths today. Ted Chernick, Global News. Pretty serious situation over there. All right, for more on that, let's bring in our Keith Baldry uh, to talk a little bit more about why BC mm-hmm. is not in a position to help Alberta right now. Um, it's not just about COVID patients in the ICU. It's a, a bigger picture than that, Keith. There's a lot of other people in the ICU. And what we're talking about from Alberta's perspective is moving ICU patients. They're the most critically ill. But our situation with the ICU is quite uh, problematic as well. Here's the numbers of our current situation. We have 510 ICU beds in this province uh, and 218 surge beds that come into use on an emergency basis. 444 of those ICU beds are currently occupied. 86.7% occupation rate. 117 unvaccinated people are in the ICU. That's 16 
16% of all the beds, including the surge beds. So you see, that's just the bed uh, uh, look. There's also the human resources angle here. We simply don't have enough critical care nurses to take on even more ICU cases. That's the real problem here. It's not just beds. It's also human resources. And that's why I don't think you're going to see any ICU patients from Alberta coming to VC anytime soon. And it's you said 117 unvaccinated patients in the mm-hmm. ICU, but you have more data tonight about how many patients are in BC hospitals overall who are unvaccinated. Yeah, so the ministry released uh, data for the first two weeks of September, again, of the hospitalizations, almost 400 hospitalizations. And you can see how they break down. Almost uh, the vast majority of them are in unvaccinated people. Again, uh, this is a trend that we've seen for some time. More than 81 percent of not vaccinated, 318 people of the 390 cases. Uh, 19 of them were partially vaccinated. Surprisingly, a little higher number were fully vaccinated. Those tend to be older people over the age of 70, people under the age of 50 unvaccinated are in hospital and ICUs right now to a large degree, a large number. And that trend, unfortunately, is going to continue for some time because we're not bringing down the unvaccinated number in a really rapid way. We've gone from about 792,000 a couple weeks ago of unvaccinated to about 643,000. So there's still a long way to go to make sure we get more and more people vaccinated. Certainly is. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. All right, let's take a look at the full picture of COVID-19 numbers over the last 24 hours. We have 706 new cases And that brings our total since the pandemic began to more than 177,000. Sadly, four more people have died from COVID-19 in the last day. 291 people are in hospital and 134 of those patients are in the ICU. We have more than 5,800 active cases. 78.8% of eligible British Columbians, 12 and up, are now fully vaccinated. Well, the first rainstorm of the season is headed our way, and it's also packing the most rain the south coast has seen since January. For all the details, let's bring in our meteorologist, Christy Gordon. Christy, when uh, will we start to see this weather system hit? So it'll push in overnight, Sophie, but really the heaviest rain on and off throughout our Friday. And to be clear, that's the most rain in one day that we've seen or we could see the most rain in one day since uh, January. So here's a look. We're expecting 30 to 70 millimeters of rain across the areas that you see highlighted in green. The areas that you see highlighted in yellow, we're talking about up to 80 millimeters of rain. So a significant rainstorm, that's for sure. But not only rain, we're also expecting winds. So when I come back, we'll talk about how strong the winds will be and what we expect, of course, for our beloved weekend. It's the last weekend of summer. So, all right. Thanks for that, Christy. A devious TikTok phenomenon that's going viral. A warning for parents about students posting videos of vandalism and theft from their schools and who might end up paying for it next on the News Hour. Home sweet home for the PNE prize home winner. Her reaction to seeing it for the first time coming up. Also tonight, colorful cats. BC Research discovers a simple solution to save a lot of birds. That's later. Right now, though, it is the last thing school districts around BC need as they deal with the stress and logistics of the pandemic. A phenomenon called devious licks. It started on TikTok with kids posting about vandalism and theft from their schools. John Hua shows us how schools are reacting and why parents might have to pay for the damage. 
This is what you get when you mix the beginning of the school year with a beat and bad intentions. So these kids at school, you know, they go into the bathrooms, they take soap dispensers, mirrors, whatever they can find. Hey man, you already know who it is. The latest social media trend called the Devious Licks Challenge has students committing larceny for views and likes on TikTok. What the f is going on? While leaving their schools in shambles. These kids are ruthless. We sent a letter out to parents last night explaining uh, that we're well aware what's going on. And it seems swiping soap dispensers is just the beginning of this disturbing TikTok trend. According to the North Vancouver School District, other items stolen as part of this challenge, paper towel dispensers, school signage, wall mirrors, fire extinguishers, and even first aid kits from the classroom. Kid got arrested because he tried to take a whole toilet off the, off the ground. It was unscrewing it. While schools here have experienced more petty theft than outright destruction, paying to replace COVID-19 safety items already in short supply in the middle of a pandemic is hard to fit in a razor-thin budget. We're going to work through a process with, with families and students around uh, possible uh, repercussions, repayments, if we want to call it that, of damaged property. For students, what they might have thought was funny at the start is already starting to lose its steam. I think it's kind of stupid because <laughs> You're like filming yourself doing a crime. You guys gotta stop taking like the soap dispensers so we can wash our hands. Well, some believe posts like this can lead to added popularity. If you are like very popular on social media, then you like also get, I guess you could call it clout, um, like in school. Now that TikTok has banned the videos, most students say like all idiotic trends. The hope is the devious licks will just start to die down. John Hua, Global News. I, I don't get it. Yeah, no, we're too old to get it. <laughs> Less than a week from the election and there's stress on the system. We've been hiring right up until the last minute. Why voting day might include some long lines. And uproar over a flyer comparing vaccine mandates to residential schools. Traffic is steady in both directions tonight at the Patello Bridge, but this is the Columbia Street on-ramp, and as you can see, it is quite heavily backed up right underneath the bridge deck. Connect Hearing is Canada's number one physician-referred hearing health care provider. Your hearing is important. Take care of it. Visit connecthearing.ca to book your hearing evaluation today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Your country, your choice. All the candidates, all the issues. All the information you need to navigate the 2021 federal election. Make an informed decision, Canada. Watch, listen, and follow Global News. There's a growing chorus calling for a People's Party of Canada candidate in Vancouver Quadra to resign following the distribution of a controversial flyer. As Neetu Karasha reports, the pamphlet compares vaccine cards to residential schools. And a warning, the story may be triggering for some viewers. There is fury over a flyer delivered to doorsteps in neighborhoods like this one in Vancouver Quadra, a federal riding that includes the Musqueam First Nation. Disrespectful, it's... Uh... It's, it's, words can't explain what, you know, that how we feel with when they're using that as a platform to try to get uh, elected in a writing. 
The flyer equates COVID-19 vaccine certificates required as proof of immunization in select non-essential businesses and services to residential schools. People's Party of Canada candidate Renata Siegman took to Twitter announcing her campaign distributed it to some 52,000 homes and defending the decision claiming both are cases of human rights violations. You can't compare a vaccine to children that were taken, their language was beat out of them, they were sexually abused, they were uh, physically abused in those schools. After unmarked graves were discovered near former residential schools across the country, putting a spotlight on the ongoing effects of the country's history of forced assimilation, Indigenous leaders say the timing of these flyers is even more troubling. I think it's an offensive uh, comparison for Indigenous peoples that experienced uh, far too often the uh, genocidal policies that uh, uh, for literally generations. As First Nations people, uh, we're at a high risk. I can say on behalf of our community, we're 98% vaccinated, double vaccinated. Siegman did not respond to our request for comment. Amid the backlash over the flyer, Chief Sparrow told Global News he received an invitation on Thursday from Siegman to meet with him, but he's refusing to do so. Instead, he and the BC Assembly of First Nations are calling for a public apology. They should be re-picked up from all of the where she circulated them and, and she should resign. Nitu Garcha, Global News. And a 24-hour crisis line is available for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their or their family's residential school experience. That's the number on your screen, 1-866-925-4419. With just four days to go until Canadians cast their ballots, the latest round of polling is still showing a very close three-way race here in B.C., Richard Zussman joins us now in studio in front of a very fancy television set to take a look at Metro Vancouver's battleground ridings and which races you should be watching closely on election night. Yeah, and you'll be watching closely this screen, Chris. You'll see a lot of this over the next few days and especially Monday night. And the big ridings in Metro Vancouver are this circle right around the city. That ultimately could decide whether it's a liberal minority, a liberal majority, or a conservative minority across the country. The North Shore, crucial. Three seats the Liberals hope to hold on to. While they play defense there, they're on the offensive in some other places. The Liberals have been poring over the data in B.C. and they're targeting Cloverdale-Langley City. The party won it in 2015, lost it to the Conservatives in 2019, and experts say they need to win it back. It's going to be impossible for Justin Trudeau to get a majority government without picking up new seats in British Columbia. For that majority, the Liberals targeting other seats they lost in 2019 as well. Richmond Steveston, where Trudeau has visited. Mission Matsqui Fraser Canyon on the list as well. But pollsters don't see the same Liberal wave that swept through Metro Vancouver in 2015 and in turn the same overall impact from B.C. We could matter if there was an opportunity for the Liberals to gain seats here and the Liberals had a chance at a majority, but uh, it doesn't look like the Liberals have a lot of opportunity to gain seats here and it doesn't look like the Liberals are going to be getting near a majority. Even Vancouver Granville, Jody Wilson-Raybould's old riding, has left the for sure column. The Liberal candidate there has encountered some controversy, of course, and uh, I think that riding is now anyone's guess. The Conservatives won the most seats in B.C. in 2019 and are targeting Delta, where O'Toole visited as a potential pickup. But any gains may be stopped by an unlikely foe. The 
only real hope for the liberals to gain uh, seats in this election is if somehow the numbers are off in terms of support for the uh, the PPC, and it really does limit the ability of the uh, conservatives to get out their votes. The pollsters are also watching the NDP very closely. Right now, they're actually leading the way in British Columbia, and that could mean pickups here on the North Shore and Burnaby North Seymour, as well as Port Moody, Coquitlam, and Vancouver Island matters, really because of the Greens. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in this riding of Nanaimo Ladysmith, where Paul Manley is hoping to hold on, but the NDP very much have their eyes on that one as well. And we'll find out, obviously, all those results, Chris, on Monday. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an exciting night of coverage for sure. Thanks very much, Richard. We'll be glued to Richard's screen there. <laughs> That's right. Well, like everything else in our lives, Monday's federal election will not escape the impact of the pandemic. That's right. Elections Canada admits it's been dealing with a labor shortage like most employers right now. They're also putting out the warning that any abusive behavior at the polls will not be tolerated. Paul Johnson reports. Lining up for advanced voting in Vancouver. For the vast majority of those who have done so, it's been smooth and problem-free. But we've seen some moments where the mechanics of democracy have shown the strain of this extraordinary time. There were a few disruptive and almost abusive, I would say, incidents that did happen. Elections Canada official Andrea Morantz says the nastiness they've seen so far appears to have been inspired by the well-known COVID denial movement and its numerous variants. But she assures us that come election day, polling places have plans to deal with it that may include professional security if necessary. Elections Canada will not tolerate any abuse of our employees. So while they've got contingencies to deal with squabbles over masks, what should people expect for lineups? The pandemic means that Election Canada has about 20% fewer poll workers than normal. But with adjustments, they believe the biggest wait time factor will still be time of day. Early morning, lunch hour and dinner time being the busiest. And most voters don't seem too concerned. No, not at all. I think the government has got it figured out. And I know people are voting early if they feel comfortable doing that. No concerns at all. Easy peasy. Though one voter shared with us a criticism heard on the campaign trail itself, that the election call was irresponsible. I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for a lot of us to vote because they don't have very many spots to vote. Other wild cards include an estimated 20,000 Canadians who will be banned from voting because of a positive COVID test in recent days and the decision by Elections Canada to not set up polls at university campuses, potentially affecting thousands more voters. Paul Johnson, Global News. Up next, more aggravation in the fight at Ferry Creek. Some of the vehicles were dragged down the road on their side. Allegations that vehicles are being towed and even damaged unfairly. And how rainbow cat collars could preserve a lot of birds, thanks to BC Research. Little bit of leftover southbound volume here tonight at the Massey Tunnel. The 99 is slow from the Steveston on-ramp on the approach. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel.
New research out of the University of Northern BC suggests a simple way to help bird populations is to dress house cats in colorful collars. Each year, millions of birds are killed by domestic cats. While some owners hang bells from their cats' collars, Dr. Ken Otter says cats can learn to move without jingling those bells. So he has been testing out these brightly colored collars that are highly visible to the birds. Somewhere between 150 to 300 million birds per year um, for, uh, for domestic cats uh, are contributing to kills uh, by domestic cats. It's basically like an early warning detection system for birds that are very good uh, with visual acuity and, and being able to see colors. And so it kind of gives them a heads up that there's a cat hiding in the bushes. The study will be expanded to 40 cats for next summer. I don't know if the cats like it. No, they don't. I can tell oh, you that. <laughs> that's right. Okay, um, anti-logging protesters are accusing forest company Teal Jones and the RCMP of underhanded tactics at the Ferry Creek blockade. They claim they're not just targeting the activists, but dozens of their vehicles as well, and it's proving costly. As Kylie Stanton reports, the issue is now being decided in court. It's one of dozens of vehicles that's been towed down this logging road, away from the Ferry Creek blockades. This one with the windshield smashed and body totaled. Others apparently in even worse shape. Some of the vehicles were dragged down the road on their side and have been completely destroyed. The logging company responsible, Teal Jones, says it has contracted a towing company to remove vehicles illegally parked in direct contravention of the injunction that forbids protesters from blocking access to roads and company activity. Protesters are calling it illegal and are now taking Teal Jones to court. By all means, if these vehicles were blocking roads, then they've got a right to tow them and, and uh, try and get damages for them. But the vehicles of my clients that were proceeding at the court on weren't blocking the roads. But the protesters are alleging not only are their vehicles being illegally impounded, they say the fees being charged for their return are essentially extortion. $2,500 is a lot of money, honestly, for anyone to pay. And honestly, the car probably isn't even worth that much. So This receipt, provided to Global News by a protester, shows the payment in full. And there have been reports owners of larger vehicles are being slapped with double the charge. One was charged actually 5000 for his truck and his uh, trailer. While Global News was unable to confirm that specific incident, in a statement, Teal Jones defended the towing fees, saying the cost of retrieving vehicles reflects the expense of towing vehicles out of a remote area, storage and security, and the damage done to Teal Jones. This all comes as the logging company is in court, asking for a one-year extension of the injunction that's set to expire on September 26th. Protesters believe this is all part of escalating tactics ahead of the deadline. People are taking a beating, but it's making us stronger. What can you say? Like, sometimes you need a little salt in the wound. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Well, both the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines have been given the full green light after receiving full Health Canada approval for anyone aged 12 and older. Now those vaccines and others are getting some new names, and they're a little awkward. <laughs> Pfizer and Moderna's shots were first authorized for use months ago. That approval, however, was under an interim order that allowed for a speedy rollout of the vaccines 
to try to slow the spread of COVID-19. That order ended today, and with the full approval come some new names for those vaccines. Pfizer's COVID-19 shot will now be known as Comirnaty, according to Health Canada. Moderna's, meanwhile, has been dubbed Spikevax. AstraZeneca's will be called Vaxevria. Because why not change things up now? Yeah, I don't... In the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> we'll see what we refer to them as going forward. Up next, the PE Prize Home winners get their first walkthrough, their reaction to seeing it all for the first time. Next. And after weather, civilians in space, the mission to expand humanity's horizons. Well, three days after finding out while watching global news that she'd won a new home, Williams Lake resident Connie Thompson saw it in person today for the first time. This is so beautiful. Thompson and her husband Stewart toured the 2021 PE Prize home in South Surrey. Thompson says she tuned into Global, of course, on Monday to watch the draw, and needless to say, was stunned when she heard the results. First time ever, I sat down to watch them draw for the PE Prize home. I had the ticket in my on my phone, and I was looking at the numbers when they drew the numbers, the new, the number, and I said, I won. My daughter was in the kitchen and she said, that's not the voice of somebody that just won. And I went, no, I bleep won. <laughs> and then I freaked out. She's been a basket case. <laughs> I love that. Love that sound. Thompson says she doesn't plan to move the family to Surrey after living in Williams Lake for 29 years, but she will sell the house and use part of that money to upgrade her own home. Congratulations, Connie. Uh, all right, let's check in now because there are some major changes coming in the weather, and that includes a lot of rain. Christie's got the details now. Thanks. You know, today felt like summer across the region with sunshine. I mean, there's cloud cover right now, but for the majority of the day, it was sunny. And we're going to plunge right into fall tomorrow. We still have five more days of summer. We don't officially change over to summer until the 22nd, which is on Wednesday. But it's definitely going to feel like fall tomorrow. And there's a high stream flow advisory that has been issued for all of the south coast because we're expecting so much water. Keep careful near those rivers and streams because they can rise very quickly. And of course, uh, make sure you're, you're bringing your cat, pets nice and close with you while you're walking. All right. So there's the distribution of rainfall. This is through the day tomorrow. So by midnight tomorrow night, we're talking about 50 to 60 millimeters 70 in some areas far less expected in victoria and courtney but it'll still be a rainy day for you and windy conditions so along the strait of georgia outer coast of vancouver island we're talking about gusts ranging from 50 to 60 kilometers an hour so it'll push in overnight but really the heaviest rain will be on and off throughout the day tomorrow those of you in the interior are also being affected but not until late tomorrow so really the hardest hit region will be the south coast but we'll see rainfall across the north coast the caribou region as well very little in through the southern interior 
carrier, but we will see that rain, as I mentioned, push in through the evening hours, but it will be brief. So pull out the rain jackets, the gum boots. All the kids will need them because a lot of schools send the kids out even with weather like this. So make sure they're ready for it and bundle them up because it's only going to be highs of about 14 or 15 degrees. We're talking about a good five to six degrees below seasonal for this time of year. So a huge plummet into fall tomorrow. As we head into the weekend, temperatures stay rather cool, but it finally easing off to just a chance of showers. But it's definitely going to feel like fall over the next little while. Tonight's central windows weather window from an area near Karamea's beautiful Quinisco uh, Lake from Brian Herman there. So thanks so much, Brian. Love seeing that sunshine on the mountain off in the background there. Okay, guys, back to you. Beautiful reflection, too. Thanks very much, Christy. An historic first day in orbit for four civilians, becoming the first average persons to circle the Earth repeatedly. SpaceX launched a rocket on Wednesday night for a three-day ride into the great unknown, marking a new chapter in the space tourism industry. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. At $200 million total, this might be one of the most expensive trips ever taken, as SpaceX launched four civilians into outer space. You have to get this one right for all the other great missions to follow. Looks like a smooth ride for the crew. Funded by a tech billionaire, the Inspiration4 spacecraft and its crew are some 580 kilometers above Earth. Really up there now. Higher than the International Space Station. I'm just so honored and thankful and grateful to be a part of this historic mission and a part of the SpaceX team. Among the four members, the first ever black female spacecraft pilot and a cancer survivor, now physician, at a leading cancer research hospital that's benefiting from the money raised for this flight. I want to bring this experience back and share with, with everyone I encounter. They look so excited. It's an experience to which opportunity has graced the very few. Government space agencies have sent only a dozen or so ordinary people above the Earth. Ignition? Until earlier this year, when Sir Richard Branson used his billions to approach the edge of space. Not long after, Jeff Bezos went a little further. It is the opening of a new era in the sense that you don't have to have that level of expertise to simply go to space. This new rush into space is unsettling for environmentalists who are critical of the carbon footprint. But for these private companies, chasing the dream is their focus. These Dragon capsule and crew are in a nominal orbit. There we go. The crew went through rigorous training and will collect scientific research as they circle the Earth once every 90 minutes, making it a working adventure, one that will lend to a lifetime of memories and a place in that. history. An unexplored frontier. A few have come before and many are about to follow. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Like, where are they going to vacation next? It's <laughs> all a letdown after this. <laughs> Nothing right? will beat that. Beaches may be beautiful, but it's not space. The one thing, if you followed the space program over the years, these suits have gotten much more form-fitting. Yes, right? the old bulky ones, the guys who had to go to yeah. the moon. Those guys wore like they were never fit the, properly. It's it's spacesuit, but fashion. And speaking of fashion and uniforms. That is a very good segue. Uh, artist Kareen Hunt and the BC Lions are doing something great for their next home game. The idea that 10,000 people will be wearing this in the stadium. A stylized BC Lions logo on an Every Child Matters shirt for the first 10,000 fans at BC Place on September 24th. We're going to keep the fashion theme going here too because we're going from fashion to food. A First Nation designer adds something else to her menu coming up.
Squire. Yes. I was just looking up an issue related to COVID, so I'm doing research for my job. What's happening in your job? I'm cured. Didn't you have a whole so day to research this Facebook. thing? Come on. <laughs> okay. Uh, the NHL says the salary cap will likely go up by $1 million per team next year. It doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking about the NHL and salary caps, but Every little bit helps when you're in a tight salary cap squeeze like the Vancouver Canucks will find themselves in when they sign Quinn Hughes and Elias Pedersen, which they haven't done yet. Uh, also, the NHL says they think 98% of their players will be vaccinated by the start of the season on October 12th. Also, the Oilers, the Flames and the Jets can all play in front of full houses right away. Montreal and the Canucks will be at reduced capacity. For Rogers Arena, this will likely mean that half the arena can be full of fans for the start of Vancouver's season. The Leafs and the Senators, incidentally, their capacities are not known yet. And the Seattle Kraken have put their jerseys up for sale in Seattle finally, and they're selling pretty well. Good-looking sweaters. I do think it would have been cool if they had a big Kraken on the sweater, but the uh, big S is kind of a throwback to the old Seattle Metropolitans who had a big S on their sweater. All right, this is uh, very cool. The BC Lions are on the road this week in Montreal. Their next home game will be Friday, September 24th against Saskatchewan. That always means a lot more people in the building. There are a lot of Ryder fans make that in this town. And it's a perfect night for the BC Lions to do something great. Use their orange in a powerful way. A stylized version of the BC Lions logo designed by Indigenous artists Kareen Hunt, who co-designed the 2010 Olympic medals, will be on this Every Child Matters t-shirt and the first 10,000 fans at the game between the Riders and Lions on September 24th will get one in recognition of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. That's a great idea. The uh, Whitecaps, of course, are dreaming of the day when they can put their two highest paid players on the same field at the same time for an entire 90-minute contest, Ryan Gold and Lucas Cavallini. But Cavallini is still trying to work through a left knee injury. He's probably able to play part of the game against Colorado on Sunday night, but the coach says he's not ready for the full meal deal yet. At this moment, we cannot task him to be the Lucas Cavallini for 90 minutes uh, at the top. But uh, we need to, he needs to work a lot in training to, to get back. And uh, each day is, is, gonna, is better, to be honest. There will be four women's teams, including Canada, of course, and 12 men's teams at BC Place this weekend for the Rugby Sevens event. Canada is part of that group as well, as you'd expect. It's great to have this back. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, some fan favorites like New Zealand, Australia and Fiji couldn't make it for this year's event. Adam Hadwin is second at the first PGA event of the new season. Adam Svensson from Surrey is in there as well. All four BC boys, and they're all at either two under or as Hadwin is at six under. Good start. i got to show you this. Spartak Moscow defense and Mikhail Mamkin. Uh, 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 they, ow. Oh, no. I know. You know what that reminded me of? Watching that movie where Bambi is on the ice on the frozen lake. <laughs> Because after he loses the puck, he begins to struggle with basic motor skills and forgets how to skate. Oh, no. Truly an embarrassing moment. Well, slippery. But that's true. He is playing on ice, and ice is slippery, so he does have an excuse. You are correct. I mean, simple, right? (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't have fallen if this wasn't so icy. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks very much, Squire.
All right, up next, from fashion to food, how an indigenous designer is cooking up a major career change. Next. An indigenous fashion designer from the Okanagan is having her last show in Britain this week after years of creating designs to help preserve her culture. Jill Sita is about to make a major career change, but as Jay Durant reports on This Is BC, her impact in the design world has been an inspiration for many. Put one hand on your hip, then one down in front of you. Jill Sita is getting a little help from her daughter Helen as she puts the finishing touches on her final creations. After 10 years as a First Nations fashion designer, she's decided this weekend's show in London will be her last. (laughs) Definitely is not paying the bills for sure. I sell a piece here and a piece there. But she hasn't stayed in it for the money. Her designs have a purpose. This last series is to raise awareness of murdered and missing Indigenous women, men and children in Canada. This one says Indigenous resilience. And remember the ones who... A terrible experience at a show in France in 2017 made her realize the importance of this work in trying to educate the ignorant. While I did a show in Paris, I was asked if we still lived in teepees. To have somebody ask me a question like that was just shocking. Sita first got into design to make sure her children had traditional pieces to wear. She actually needed a bit of help at the start. It was her husband who taught her some skills with the sewing machine. I didn't even know how to thread it. I didn't know anything. And he, he was the one that actually showed me how. More than a thousand designs later, she is retiring, having proudly presented the fashion industry with many unique creations. I made this for my daughter for her grade nine grad. I go to these shows in, in hopes to raise awareness, to show people our indigenous culture here in Canada, just to um, go and be very proud of who I am and where I come from. And she plans to continue showcasing that culture in her next career, running a First Nations food truck specializing in tacos. After I got the word out, people just love my bannock and they keep coming back. So that makes me extremely happy. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email thisisbc at globalnews.ca. And those tacos look good. I want to try them desperately. Uh, real quick, uh, with the major weather change coming, let's give Christy the last word here. It's getting darker behind you already. Yes, and dig out your rain gear. You're going to need it, and the kids will sure need it, as well as an extra layer because it'll be chilly. All right.